You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Okay, afternoon everybody. Um, thanks so much for turning up. Um, we didn't have any trouble uh, getting attendance for this event. In fact, uh, we had to close it off very, very quickly because the, the queues to come and see this were terrific. So I'm really pleased to see you here. Um, and I'm most of all, of course, pleased to see Lenny here. Uh, and I, I sort of thought, oh, do I need to introduce him? Probably not. Um, but we are recording this, so I'm going to very quickly go through just a couple of key dates before we, we launch in. So my name's Ruth Barton, and welcome to the School of Creative Arts at Trinity College Dublin. Um, and we have Lenny with us today. Um, and uh, I'm going to just run through the extraordinary achievements in about 30 seconds. Um, so Lenny, of course, is a graduate of Trinity College. Um, and made his first film here, Three Joes, in 1991. Um, and then there's a, a, a gap where he went off considering uh, the meaning of life and the existence of God and whatnot, um, before c coming to his senses and deciding to be a filmmaker. So uh, from that point on, we have actually, I think, still... I'm never sure whether Adam and Paul the first film in 2004, or Garage, the second film in 2007, is still my favourite, but they're, they're jostling. Um, uh, and then Prosperity, 2007. Um, what Richard did, which I think forms a kind of loose trilogy then of, of the Irish films about um, outsiders in various uh, places and spaces and times um, in Irish society. Um, he then moved on to the super quirky Frank um, and why not put Ireland's most famous and glamorous film star in a mask and keep them there uh, for nearly the entire movie? And then, of course, the, the, the film that catapulted Lenny into you know, stellar uh, success and, and got him the recognition that was by that stage well overdue, which is, of course, Room. Um, uh, a you know, fantastic film and uh, super, super creepy in a certain way. I know you worked in TV um, with Prosperity in 2007 and Chance in 2016, and then, of course, most recently, The Little Stranger, a film I loved because it just seemed to upend so many of our expectations about behaviour and gender roles and, again, um, outsiders and sort of creepiness. creepiness. Um, and um, I know that you're working on normal people now, and um, we were just talking about that earlier, yeah. so back to Trinity. Yeah. <laughs> back to Trinity and how it's changed. But rather than do the career, um, rather than do the career overview and have people ask questions about their favourite moments in the films, we decided we'd go for something a little bit more conceptual. So we decided to ask the question, why make movies? Um, and it seemed that there were, um, you know, this provoked a, a series of answers. Um, the first, the sort of superficial you know, answer the question is why make movies when everybody watches television? Um, uh, there's that, but and, and you know we'll talk about that first. Um, but I think you know it also raised the question of, well, do you make movies because you've got a set of ideas that you want to that you want to kind of propel into uh, into the wider space? And, and if you, and if that is, how difficult is it to do that? And you don't want to be preachy. You want people to have a good time in the cinema, and yet you've got something you want to say, which you you know you very clearly do. And then. And we were going to move on to kind of a third part is that once you've become, you know, super famous as Lenny is, you've then got a platform and, and you become, if you wish to be, which he has, a public intellectual. Um, and that platform, though, weirdly now, or not weirdly, but that platform perhaps predictably, is social media. Um, and, and where Lenny has um, an often quoted Twitter feed, so you'll tweet something, the Irish Times will pick it up, and you were very busy tweeting at various points in the referendum, and, you know, you have, uh, 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 you know, really clearly a set of ideas. But then, um, you know, you put me on to this, uh, to uh, Jaron Lanier, and, yeah. you know, uh, what was it, 10 reasons why you should never engage with social media? Yeah, 10, ten reasons why you should delete all your social media accounts now. Yeah, so these are, these are things that I know we have an hour, but these are topics that I hope we'll cover within, within the hour. Um, so shall we kick off then, Lenny? Sure. For sure. Why make movies? Well, so that question about, you know, when everybody's watching TV and we're in this golden age of TV and, um, you know, I think there's, there are, first of all, people still go to the cinema. Um, and although the landscape of what films people watch in the cinema has changed a bit, you could argue that the more, and to use a sort of uh, shorthand phrase, the more grown-up content has often, like to a large extent, migrated to TV, whereas what you see in cinema is increasingly 
Um, I mean, not you, it, there, it's in flux, and there's obviously many shades to this, but a lot of the big blockbusters and, and superhero films and things like that. Um, I think, like, like, there are two two stages to what makes something a film. One is the second part is where it's exhibited, and that. So what's happening is that films are now being made for Netflix, and they sometimes, you know, Netflix being one example, or Amazon, these other big streaming services, and they sometimes give a kind of uh, lip service to a cinema release because they want to qualify for awards, but basically it's to get more subscribers to their platform. So some, some of those films are really interesting. I mean, um, uh, Roma was made for Netflix, mm. and uh, I haven't seen it yet, but it, by all accounts, a really good piece of work. But it's, and it's clearly a film, and it's an authored film. So I think the... The, maybe the, the question as I was thinking about on my way in is more what's so special about the cinema and is it possible to still make serious films for the cinema which will get the sort of audience that allows you to, you know, for it to make financial sense? And the answer is I don't know if it's possible. I mean, I think it's really, really hard. Um, what was interesting about Room was having gone through that experience and, and having seen a film kind of work, in quotes, um, really looking back now, for a film about, you know, a, a, a mother and child incarcerated where there's this kind of terrible shadow of, of the, the captor and what he's really doing and what's really happening, and when you, when you sort of place that idea out in the world and say, would you like to come and see it? The only way, actually, in retrospect, that that film could have got its audiences by figuring largely, looming large in the awards conversation. Yeah, so yeah, awards. That was really, it, actually. Yeah, that, was the, yeah. oh, that was the marketing strategy was get it nominated for our Oscars. I didn't know that at the beginning, really. I hadn't thought about it. I'd never thought much further than just making the film. But that's not a, that's not a, a realistic strategy, um, you know, to sort of to make a, 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 a series. You know, you can't, that's not, we can't work that way. Only, only whatever five to ten films are going to get a Best Picture nomination or whatever every year. And so, so the idea that that's what you've got to aim for, and it, it just it sort of warps the output, I think. So I don't know what the answer is. I mean, if, if it's, it's, a, it's a big question. I think making movies will continue because people want and still recognize the kind of potential for a certain kind of intensity in a 90-minute or 120-minute single-vision piece of work versus series television. But whether or not those films will survive, those, the ones that we're, we like will survive in cinema, uh, you know, in theaters or not, I just don't know. And I find it kind of disturbing because I really do, you know, all of my formative experiences with films, they're, they, they're connected to that kind of communal viewing and that room. And, and so I get it more now at festivals and... Mm. It's funny, I don't think of the cinema, and I'm just having this thought now, I don't think of the cinema much when I'm thinking about, you know, what's interesting to watch at the moment. Mm. So if we decide to go to the cinema, it's usually like, it's not so much, it's not always a guilty pleasure, but it's like the chances of there being something really, really good there available to me in my city on a big screen are quite low. I'm much more likely to find it on, you know, Criterion or... Uh, some interesting streaming services or whatever, you know, or on screeners that I'm sent. And that's a yeah, pity. Yeah, and it, it, does, it does raise the question too, on the one hand, to see these films here, you need a subsidised space, which yeah. the Film Institute is. Yeah. Um, and, and I know you have this Lighthouse as well, mm -hmm. but, but the Film Institute is probably the first venue that people think yeah. of. And that has to be subsidised, otherwise yeah. those films couldn't be shown yeah. there. And they have to show a certain amount of Irish films, for instance, yes. and so those, those films pop up. But the second thing... That, that intervenes in this is how are you hearing about the film you want to go and mm. see? And, and, and there's, I think, a lot of anxiety around the death of a kind of critical culture. Mm. And so it's, it's the aggregator sites yeah. um, are, are, you know, killing films. Yeah, the aggregator sites are, I mean, and, 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 and they're too, they're, I mean, it's very, it's hard not to be, I mean, I, everybody looks at them because yeah. it's just really handy. But if you think about what goes on in an aggregator site, it's like a film that is just basically, say, crap, you know, middling crap might get 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. That's because everybody thinks it's about, it's sort of, you know. 
But a film which is really provocative and interesting may get 50% also because half of the critics adore it and half of them think it's rubbish. They are two very different experiences to sort of have in a cinema. And yet, there's no way of differentiating them from the quick look at, at the aggregator. And it's also the, it's the, it's the commodification, I mean, or the, just this, the, the sort of the increasingly slick commodification of it. You know, we've always, of course, we've, we, this commodification is not new, but, but people's kind of, like how many stars does it have? Um, is it a hit or not? Like within, within, you know, it feels like 15 minutes of release on the first day, it's judged a success or a failure. And exhibitors will make their decision based on that first Friday about whether they even keep it for another week or not. So the, the world in which things were a little bit slower, where a film would play for a while, there wouldn't be that many other, in a more single screen cinema, so it would be there for a few, couple of weeks. People would go, word could spread, and an audience could grow. That's gone. And that, if you play that game, that forces you to think about how something will play, how it will pitch, how it will look, what it will look like on social media as a one-liner, um, whether audiences are going to walk out with that kind of, my God, I was blown away response that, that is almost the only one that will carry a film, um, uh, aside from the ones that are just so big, they everybody will, everybody will see them anyway. I mean, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not. I still think it. Uh, so the flip side of all this is that if you're prepared to keep your budgets low, and given how much more available the means of filmmaking, you know, the technical means of filmmaking are. There's never actually been a better time to make something that is entirely yours. Um, you know, so I don't know. It, I don't know. We're in some sort of interesting transitional phase. I don't think anybody completely knows where it's going. Um, but I do worry about opportunities to see um, kind of like ex really genuinely exciting and creative work in the cinema. Yeah, and that's a, and it's a loss. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, well, I, um, moving on then from that, perhaps, to the, the kind of bigger question that we were looking at. I mean, you know, we, we know you're a thinking filmmaker, and you're now an auteur, and so in one sense, people are going to see their films, your films, because they're made by you. Um, and if you, if you now look back at your filmmaking career, there's a, certain, there's a set of concerns that are very mm. clearly coming through about marginality, about, you know, physical uh, loneliness, mm -hmm. um, about being different, mm. and these are kind of literate, and I, was, I think, you know, we can say, say art, has, mm -hmm. art has films. Um, and so I just wondered, you know, to what extent do you, do you sort of set out and say, okay, <laughs> here are my ideas, and now I'm, I'm going to make a film that corresponds, or do they sort of seep through into the film? They seep through into the film. I think I have resisted, and probably to my detriment, um, challenging myself with what John in Frank might have said, called, you know, a journey to the furthest corners of the, of the things that I'm interested in. So, I'm, you know, I tend to be sort of, I think most people are, you know, have a self-critical voice as well as the one that drives them forward. And, in, and mine is usually saying you haven't spoken as yourself enough. Um, you're hiding or finding ways of slipping your ideas in through these projects which have other... Uh, kind of uh, engines running them as well. Um, I think the ideal answer, I mean, the, what, the answer I'd love to give as to why I make films, or, or the way I would love to characterize the films that I'd made, if it were, if, if, if the career had been like its very best self so far, is probably just as some kind of way of having a, a really rich conversation with yourself about your own experience of being in the world. I mean, that's that's the best work for me. And that comes in all, that doesn't limit in terms of tone or people make very radically different work, but it, 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 there is a kind of ongoing knocking against the kind of fuzziness of one's own experience. I mean, daily life is kind of a, a, an experience which doesn't allow much room for reflection, right? And so we spend a lot of time, I suppose, coming up against our own preoccupations, limitations, and not being really able to, to engage with that, you know? And what art lets you do, um, and the great, greatest art does so sort of vividly, is, is build a, a conversation with that 
which, 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 which can sort of push the mist back a bit and reveal, you know, just truths. Um, and I think, um, so I think I've managed to do some of that. Uh, and that's definitely what is motivating me. And at the beginning, that was very, very clear. But then the career itself becomes a thing. And it's a noisy, um, f the filmmaking world is a noisy environment. And if you've got an ego, which everybody does, um, you become part of a kind of a, a, a kind of a, 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 an organism or, you know, or some sort of, you become part of an ecosystem where there is definitely perceived success and failure and, and there are people who, whose fortunes are kind of aligned to your own in a given film who want something else out of it. And, and so keep being, being tough enough not to just become aligned to whatever the dominant pressures are in, that, in the industry that you work or the world that you work in, I think that's really hard. And I, I actually yesterday was talking to somebody who I really regard very well in the, you know, as a, as a financer of films about this and saying that I want to make some very kind of what will be quite small, quite difficult films. And, and, and she's very up for that. And, and I sort of had this conversation with myself yesterday, funny enough, that, that I must do that, otherwise I will regret it. Because uh, it must have been tempting. I mean, you must have had fantastic offers after yeah. Room to do blockbusters in yeah. Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, and did you kind of, did you go, oh. I mean, there's definitely a, like, there's a sort of bit where, where it's fun. Like, I'll say to my wife, Monica, I'll say, you know, I got a call from, and they said, and, I, and, and then you sort of, it's, it's a tickling thing, right? But I don't think I ever thought, I never thought seriously about any of the projects. Yeah, okay. But I, at the same time, what I go, and, you know, I resist swinging completely the other way. So the, if I look at what's, what I'm working on at the moment, there is a kind of spectrum of work, and I think I could probably expand it at the left end a little okay. bit more. Okay. I know I won't go... I mean, I think I could make... Uh, there are a couple of projects that I have which are bigger. Yes. Even than the ones I've made so far. You know, and, and, the, and they'll have their challenges, but they need to be because of what the content is. Um, but I think I could definitely go left a bit more as well. And, and taking, taking that point about, you know, the ecosystem, and the other thing about film is, you know, if you, if you had decided to be a writer, you'd be writing a book on your own somewhere, and mm -hmm. the book would be completely under your control. Yeah. And then, well, you know, you, you, you would hope it got published. Yeah. The thing about film is it's a collaborative a process. And, you know, what's interesting about your career is that although you've kept, you know, certain core people mm -hmm. that you're working with, Stephen Rennix, for example, yeah. I think, on all the films, yeah. um, you've actually moved... You've moved very interestingly between collaborators. Yes. Starting with with Marco Halloran and the, on the first couple of films, yeah. then you know the, Frank is uh, uh, working with John, John Ronson, Ronson and John Peter Strawn, yeah. Um, and um, then you know then again you know Emma Donoghue with Room, and yeah. now you're working on Sally Rooney. So on a sort of very superficial level, you've gone from male, male yeah. authored pieces to female worked, authored I've, pieces. I've been working with almost exclusively with women actually in terms of writers for quite a long time it's been and it, there was no conscious but I've been all the stuff that I've been drawn to has been or even people who feel like the right collaborator I, I'm collaborating with with somebody uh, at the moment I'm, I'm writing with somebody this um, film which is in the, set in the boxing world in the states and I, that's a that's a male collaborator because we've been talking about it but yes I think actually the funny thing for me is that when you ask that question about whether I sit and consciously say what are my concerns apart from this territory which I hope to address with, with some sort of more difficult, small things. Generally speaking, it's a kind of instinctual process where something, I, I just know I can see myself in it, you know? Like I, the story, this, this boxing story is a story, like in a, in a way completely different to anything I've done and couldn't be further from my world, if, if whatever that is. Um, and it's a story about this uh, Caribbean immigrant to the States in the late 50s, or early, mid 50s, true story, who was uh, uh, gay and wanted to work in the fashion industry and ended up getting a job in a hat factory in the garment district in New York. Um, and, who's, and the boss was a boxing fanatic. And this guy, Emil Griffith, has just an incredible physique. And the boss said, you ever think about 
boxing he's not particularly he took him to a gym and a year like a year later he was golden gloves champion a year later he was world champion he was world champion for quite a long time and um had this extraordinary um double life and the and the, the reason i'm drawn to it is that there is so, and there's lots of footage of him there are loads of interviews so i, I i've immersed myself in his life <coughs> And this came in as, oh, this is just an amazing story. You should read this. And I'm going, well, that sounds like a big drama and sounds fascinating. It doesn't really feel like, why would it be me particularly? But what it is, is there is something oddly masked about him. Okay. And that's what, I've, that's what I've worked out, having become obsessed with him. That he is... He doesn't have to wear a mask. He right? doesn't have to wear a mask, exactly. But it's present. And, and the story does not follow the trajectory of the standard Hollywood one, where he eventually embraces his identity. He kind of half did, and he never, there's a kind of a, a tragic shame which continued with him. And there's something about his, un, his disconnection to himself, actually, and the tragedy of that, and the social dimension to what, you know, of what really created that fracture in him. That's what interests me. And you can see bits of Frank, and you can see Faraday, and you can see... Josie, even, in that odd impenetrability. Yeah, it was just that all those were flashing in front of me, yeah. all, those, all those parts. And, and Faraday, which is a very interesting one, um, because, I mean, one of the interesting things, just to go to the, the most recent film, The Little Stranger, which he's the uh, uh, traumatised uh, uh, war veteran who's got these terrible, terrible mm. burns, so he has a kind of mask because yes. he can't move. Yeah. And, and also, you know, he, he's quite a beautiful film star, yes. <laughs> too, who now has to, you know, has to mask himself, mask yeah. himself up. I think I pr have a, a habit of taking really good-looking men and, <laughs> and hiding them. Mm, I wonder and, and disfiguring them. <laughs> and disfiguring them. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Anybody from the psychology department here? <laughs> So yes, there is, there, I think that's a, you know, that's a really interesting thing. And it, one of the things about Little Stranger, though, is it's not quite clear who the principal character in yes. that film is. Yeah. And, and that's sort of something you see, that I think is perhaps developing more in, yeah. in, in what you're doing, that it's not about a singular person or two. Yeah, it's about a group. A, yeah, a group. Yeah, and, you know, I, I kind of... I think as well, just un unless I feel like there's some... Or at least I would like to feel like, I know I'm happiest when I'm making things where I feel like there is some dimension of, of, of just taking conventions and upending them. And, you mm. know, because there's nothing more deadening than the habit of a certain story shape, which is why the Hollywood three-act obsession is such an odd thing, really. You know, it's as if somebody said there's only one way to paint a painting, you know, uh, or to write a novel. And, but yet in film, somehow we're supposed to you know, they're supposed to be a protagonist and, and you know, all the usual stuff. Um, and, and breaking out of that, I, I think the other thing I'm really interested in, which I haven't explored as fully as I, I would like to, is just the kind of tyranny of perspective, which is because if, 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 if something that I have constantly thought about, even as a much younger person than before I was involved in film at all, was just how kind of odd the... Uh, how odd it is that we are bound to this single perspective, you know, that the body and the mind, which are, which, which, which I don't think of as separate, but, but I can't help experiencing as separate, are wedded to each other, and that you privilege your point of view, when in fact, and it's, an, it's not a pleasant thought, if you could somehow disassociate, you realize that there's this kind of multiple realities and multiple um, perspectives, all, as meaningful, all as central as any other, and that you are, in, in a sense, profoundly peripheral. If, if you could even make sense of what it is to have a kind of, you know, to, to be some sort of center of, of your own experience. And and is that why, you know, characters in your films often seem to not quite communicate with each other? They, you know, it's a sort of, um, the sentence doesn't quite... Doesn't yeah, quite exactly. Resolution is something that I'm very suspicious of. Mm. And... Um, and also, I remember years ago, like again, I can't remember when I saw it, but there's a famous painting, Rest on the Flight to Egypt, and it's a tiny, um, it's a set of figures around a fire in an otherwise really dark canvas. It's a classical painting. And that idea of the kind of, the sort of hubris of thinking of yourself as, I don't know, it's a certain sense of weightlessness, which I get sometimes around around that, and, and film pushes you, any storytelling sort of, particularly 
uh, conventional pushes you towards the kind of what you're what 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 we're supposed to do is like oh yeah the audience say I I, I, I was really with that character and actually I think what's most interesting is 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 the interplay between feeling contained within the character's experience and then being able to in a way that one can't with one's own step outside and be distant from and not understand that character. And they're the sorts of things I want to experiment in the smaller films. But then that also means bringing your actors with you, doesn't it? And that's a, clearly a, g a gift that you have because, you know, your, your actors obviously won major awards, but also they seem to be in tune with what you're doing. Yeah. You don't get kind of dissonant, yeah. dissonant performances in yeah. your films. So, so how do you go about doing that? I mean, it's all, it's very um, instinctual and, 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 I, and it's a process of feeling your way with people and, and also, I think, understanding act, each actor as a, what that actor needs, you know, and, and it's, you can't have a one-size-fits-all approach to actors. They work, I think, like everybody, they're very different as people. Some, some, some like to keep the process very kind of, uh, they have to, it's like keeping a little fire and not letting it blow out, so you just have to be delicate. Others, it's much more uh, robust, and, and, and some, some actors need sort of physical direction, and some need lots of conversation, and so it's just different. And I just muddle my way through. I mean, I think the thing that I do that's probably good is that I do watch and listen. I don't pretend to watch and listen. Like, I know one actor that I worked with who said very nicely, um, every director says, oh, I'm really interested. I mean, I really want to listen to what your ideas are. I really want to, you know, respond to what you're doing. But almost always they don't. But I think I do. Um, and I know it took me ages to learn how to just shut up as well in like the first days of a process. Because I think there's a, t there's a, there's a terror that you'll look like you're not in charge. Yes. Particularly at the beginning. <laughs> you have <Sure>, yeah. <laughs> made films before and you come in and you're supposed to be the director. I think people overcompensate by going, right, this is what we're doing. You know, it's like put up the soccer, it's like the soccer dressing room where you're, you know, pointing out field positions and stuff. I try not to do that. I try to kind of much more lightly, even though I have a strong idea of where I want us to get to, I try to affect a kind of uncertainty because I think that is where you, you just start to hear the, the kind of hum and noise and music of other people's uh, approach to the thing and you will discover stuff mm. that you will not discover if you sort of charge in. I think maybe it's that and then I don't know, just kind of working really hard. It's much more like knocking, it's much more like finding some, a piece of sculpture in a stone than it is like, I think, uh, you know, bolting together a, a rifle, like in one of those sequences where... You and, know, and do you rehearse a lot? I mean, do you... Do, I rehearse it... a bit, but I try not to... Um, I think rehearsing a little bit is important. I think talking, being around the actress is the most important thing. And I sometimes, like with Room... Um, and this was a very specific one because you have a little boy and him feeling comfortable is super important. But I would do these things of scheduling rehearsals with Brie and Jake, Brie and ja uh, Jake, and I, I didn't want um, to over-rehearse, but I scheduled loads of rehearsals and then would make excuses why I had to run back up to the production office to, you know, do something or let, say, like, while you're here, just... So I tried to make these sort of odd times where it wasn't like just hanging out, you know, in a restaurant. Bree and Jake were kind of together in some slightly artificial space, but I wasn't rehearsing. Mm -hmm. So I like to spend time with actors and then talk through scenes, get them a certain distance. And when you feel something that's working, stop there. Because it's not like theater where you are making the thing that is then presented to an audience. In rehearsal in, in film, you're hoping to get to a kind of nose or a, like a scent of something, but you've still got to leave it to really happen on the day that you're filming. And I think dangerous if you over-rehearse. Because if you over-rehearse, you start getting into very subtle blocking and things, mm -hmm. and then you're going to find, you're, you're doing that in a rehearsal room, and then you find yourself in a real place, and none of it quite works. So yeah, I don't, I, I keep it quite, quite light. So, so moving on then to the, you know, the third part of what we were, we were thinking about is this question that now, now that you have a, a public persona, and you have it on both sides, um, you know, you have it globally, and of course, the thing about social media is it's not there's no territory particularly. Yeah. Um, 
But, you know, one of, the, I mean, one of the great things is that, you know, it would be nice if you were making an Irish film, but at least you're still living here. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I am making something here, which is great. Okay, First half of next people. year, I'm going yeah. to be making something here, and I'm really uh, That's excited. fantastic. I'm, I'm um, delighted to hear that. And, uh, and actually here in Trinity, I hope. Um, but, uh, yeah, the social media thing's funny. I sometimes think, like, when I'm giving out about Renua or something on Twitter, <laughs> I wonder what... The American people who are interested in my <laughs> tweets or think I'm talking about. Um, but uh, yeah, the, whole, the social media thing is really, I'm really kind of don't know what to do about it at the moment. It's very easy to think you're making some difference by just retweeting or I think you actually can, in defense of it, you can get a, an idea out there and then it will be picked up. And it's a, actually the other thing is a way of being available. Mm-hmm. for journalists and things like that to come. And, like, I met through through Twitter. I ended up meeting Ruth Coppinger, and I spoke at the Repeal Rally, and I hope to do something else with her, you know, in the next few months, whatever, decide whatever is the most useful. And even through Twitter, by talking about education, I ended up doing some, some stuff for Educate Together, which is a brilliant charity that runs schools, non-denominational schools. So it does have a value. I think, I think it's, I do worry that w- because the attention span is sort of shrinking and shrinking, um, there's still a lot to be said for writing something long and hard to write. I mean, pithy, funny tweets are great and everything, but it does sort of let you off the hook from, I think, the hard work of actually taking a position and, and you know, but it's the world we're in, so you know that's what people are reading and engaging with. I think, from a personal point of view, the real danger of it is just that, like with any little, uh, it's like smoking. With any little sort of zip thing that you, that gives you a little lift, you know, the engagement. It can be a kind of annoying one where you somebody annoys you and you see so you keep checking to see if they've said every, anything even more annoying. I mean, why would? It's such an odd thing to do. It's like I sometimes think about Twitter. It's like you find a nettle patch in your garden, and and every three minutes you go down and stick your hand in it just just to remind you of how much it annoys you. Um, and and you know I have all these fascinating sidebar um, conversations with. There's a couple of people, a couple of other filmmakers and friends, and an odd an odd collection of people, and all we do is bitch about a few other individuals on Twitter <laughs> and it's like uh, you know I say you know new tweet klaxon you know check out blah and then we'd all go oh my god can you believe it um, but I don't I think the danger is that that the attention span does get narrowed and there I find you know it's an involuntary twitch when you're working to just check check if anything's come through mm. or if something's there and it's not just Twitter it's the, it's the entire um content stream that we're immersed in now. Oh, yeah, I mean, I found, you know, during Brexit, the recent round of Brexit crisis, yeah. you know, oh, I, yeah. I was constantly on my phone. It's yeah. Theresa May still, she's still in power. I know. And I couldn't start, I couldn't concentrate on anything else. Uh, yeah. Watching this unfolding big... melodrama. Well, Brexit and Brexit. Trump are the two, mm. um, like, accelerants of the kind of um, information stream, even, like, with podcasts. Mm-hmm. And I think podcasts are really good, and, yeah. and there are some brilliant ones out there. But I find myself going, what? Brexitcast is only updating itself every week? That seems like, now that seems like a yearly, you know, it's like a biannual journal compared to what it needs to be. Yeah. So, so we're, it's, it, if your life becomes a kind of rolling, like if your life operates on the scale of a rolling news cycle, both socially and, you know, um, you know in terms of how you're, you get your information, I don't think that's particularly healthy. I don't think it's, it's hard to do deep work. And I think people's ability to concentrate is definitely I think that's lessened. really seriously true, yeah. Uh, and there's, a, there's actually a book, I think there's a book out there called Deep Work. I don't know, I, I haven't read it, so I can't recommend it, but I think it's supposed to be quite good. And then there's this guy, Gerald, Gerald, uh, Gerard, uh, Laney, Laney. Laney, something, something yeah. like that, you'll find him. His name is funny because it's an, uh, it's an adopted name anyway. When yes, they came to, yeah, exactly. exactly. But he's, he was one of the creators of lots of stuff about the web. And his thing now is to just try and you know wake people up to the the dangers of of social media. What he calls bad actors. Bad actors, yeah. So you know you are providing every time you click and look at stuff, you are just feeding algorithms, which are then you know narrowing the the target of what 
you like and basically sort of trying to mainline, you know, they're, just, they're basically trying to pump in as much of that kind of endorphin-y stuff as possible to get you to look at the ads that they know that you're going to like. And it's, it is sort of... It's know, addictive, isn't it? it? Is I addictive. mean, he talks yeah. about it being addictive. It's an, it's an addiction. addiction. It's yeah. definitely an addiction. People say, oh, well, it's not like, you know, it's like gambling's an addiction. There's no substance involved. It, it is definitely an addiction. Shall we um, open up to can we open up to questions? So um, this is the point where we turn over to you. Um, we have roving mics, and um, can I ask you to introduce yourself when you ask a question? Give us your name, please. And um, I can't actually see a thing. Oh, no, I can see you slightly better. So yes, here in the front, just there. Hi, I'm Susanna. Um, I have a, a question. Um, so in the past, Irish films have been noticed for doing very well nationally, and um, Irish people do go to the cinema a lot, um, but they never really get much success outside of Ireland, except your films, really. What would you say is your secret, like your, the reason your films do so well globally that other Irish films haven't necessarily tapped into? Um, thank you. I mean, I think probably... <laughs> In a way, I cheated a bit because Frank Room and Little Stranger are Irish in virtue of the fact that it's myself, Ed, a bunch of people involved in making them. But actually, they're all films which, have, which are sort of staged interna internationally. Um, it's very hard. You know, the culture, American culture is so dominant. You know, it's very hard to get your stuff. And British films do, can do pretty well on the international stage. Um, I think, first of all, it's just pretty hard to get, to get local stories to be watched. I mean, in, if you think about how many films from Australia, for example, would you see in a year? Very few, but you might see, or New Zealand, but you might see a Peter Jackson film if he makes it in America. So that center of gravity is still over there. And actually, to the credit of many people, some people are now having much more success. Um, from here, um, I think you know it's pre it's pretty amazing that if you looked at I looked at uh, I think it was Toronto. There were several Irish films that were really high profile films that were made by Irish people, not all set here. And documentaries. And documentaries too. I mean, we've, got too. New, we've got a new strength, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely. I've seen some really good documentaries recently. I think any small country, it's very very hard. And I've only uh, you know in terms of like big success, I only once. And that was with effectively an American film, um, although Irish talent, Irish creative talent, Emma Dunhue, you know, started the whole thing. Um, so, and I think we probably have to also judge our success by a different yardstick because international success is such an odd, impossible to predict thing, and it doesn't always go with quality. So, all we can really do is try. I mean, the great change is that Irish audiences want to see Irish films. Because when I started out, it was like, you know, the scene oft repeated in the Extra Vision video shop. And probably me too, as the, as the, as the speaker would be, oh, what's that? Oh, oh, it's Irish. Bang, and put it back up. <laughs> that's sort of what it was like. At least that's changed. Um, do we have, yes, over here? Hi. Uh, I'm Jojo, um, how do you think uh, spending time away from filmmaking um, before sort of entering like the uh, domestic stage and then the international stage helped you at all, or like sort of how that shaped your perspective? Yeah, I think I think I, I probably could have I should have not spent quite so much time, but I think it ultimately was good that I started making feature films a bit later. I don't think I think. Had I, because I made a short that was quite successful early, early on, and then I got kind of lost. Well, I, 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 I started, you know, continued this academic track that I was on, and then I kind of lost confidence and decided to make films, but then didn't really. I just didn't, you know, I was writing, but I wasn't happy with it. And I think had I quickly made a feature after that short, it wouldn't have been very good. Um, so I'm glad. I also think that I, I don't know, I learned a lot by doing, I mean, did a lot of TV commercials when I did start again. I learned a lot 
I just learned a certain confidence and you know how to control a set and you know how to deal with all the other pressures that are kind of sometimes a bit crushing when you make a film. Um, that was useful, but I think just also you know reading and living abroad and studying and having a life. They're they're the things about that that that, that if anything is going to give you the the kind of um, the sorts of experiences that might make interesting films. I mean, asking people how many, if you think about people going to film school at 19 or 20, there are very few people who are going to write an interesting novel at 21 or 22. But unless we, you're Sally Rooney. Unless you're Sally Rooney, exactly. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so I think probably I don't regret, given that things have gone quite well, I don't regret it. But, you know, it's that confirmation bias thing. Uh, who knows what it, maybe for a lot of other people it wouldn't have worked. It was just, and maybe I was just lucky. I think I just, I'm going to come to the question on a second. The other thing that perhaps we haven't mentioned that sort of what started at Trinity was really your relationship with Element Pictures. Mm. And that seems to be crucial yeah. for you, isn't it? Because yeah. um, you've got that almost sort of security. Yeah, thing. I'm sort of like, I am a home bird in a way. I mean, I still live in Dublin. I, um, I really value that kind of continuity, you know, as well in relationships uh, with people that I work with. And I met, I knew Ed, for, Ed so Ed Guiney, who's set up Element Pictures, he, he was here with me at the same time, but I knew him from before. I knew him from Dublin when we were about 14 or 15. And we were both used to just, you know, talk about films and music and generally be those sort of nerdy ones at the party, kind of obsessing about stuff like that. Um, and and uh, then uh, we were sort of still chatting in college and Ed said, look, why don't we set up something to make films? It was Ed, Ed's the entrepreneurial one. Mm-hmm. And Ed's the doer. And produ- Ed's produce the, is a tough number. It's a really tough number because you really have to have a lot of guts to do it. And Ed's also very good at saying to me, no, just have a look at this and, you know, um, might be interesting. And he knows how to sort of, he's very good at kind of maneuvering me into something that actually I'm really glad to be in when I'm, when I find, when I'm finally there. So Ed set this thing up with myself and Stephen was involved and other people. And then after, and then we made this thing Three Joes at the end of college. And then I went off on my sort of either very early midlife crisis or very late kind of you know adolescent crisis in my 20, early twenties. While Ed just put his head down, worked as a an intern, started getting you know junior producing roles on TV, set up a, a small TV co- a small film company, eventually Element. And Element is now you know at the scale of the British Isles, one of the biggest and best. Companies and Europe, in terms of Europe, Ed is probably one of the top five producers, I would say. Mm. And so, and for me, that's just allowed me. All I've ever done is sort of cozy along, and you know, um, had some. And it's like I have office space, and and there are people who help me with things, and I have an assistant, and all these things. And I just, um, it's been amazing because I don't want to run a company, no. you know. And some directors do, but I don't want to do that. Um, and I want that, that relationship of trust and somebody whose <coughs> taste I respect. It's just, it's incredibly good to have that. Yeah, and fantastic for us that he's here because, I mean, so many Irish films have seen the light of day yeah. because they've come through Element. Well, actually, wasn't it true that, um, I think at one of the major festivals just recently, two films were Element Picture, two films in main competition were Element Picture Films. Oh, fantastic. Disobedience and The Favourite. Fantastic. Yeah, lucky us. Yes, so we had a question over here. Uh, Hi, my name is Katya. I hope I get this uh, question straight. Uh, I want to refer to the first part um, of the discussion where it's about the worries um, of uh, crisis of cinema and and the new platforms online or also TV. And I, I, I was wondering, I mean, do you really fear that there, there, there can be such a, a loss that you describe? Or is it uh, kind of a, um, a, a normal uh, depression phase uh, that is seen throughout uh, film history um, sure. since the beginning? I mean, that's, that is the, that's the big question actually across a whole lot of worlds at the moment, like politically, you know. Is this just a very odd phase in the States, for example, or is, are we witnessing the kind of final crumbling of what was left of, you know, American democracy or whatever. So, so I hope, like I do in those 
relating to those questions. I hope that it is just a dip. There is some, people do love going to the cinema. Um, I d superhero movies can't last forever, I, th I hope. I mean, it just seems so serious, like, and now there's Aquaman, and like, you know. I, it just seems like, I don't know, you know, what haven't you, what, what hasn't there been? Um, but, uh, so, so I hope, I, I do hope, and I do think, you know, interesting stuff is still made. It's just, I suppose, we're in a more homogeneous world. Like, we don't have, you can't, like, when I was a kid, um, people, were still, people were making films in Russia under that system. You know, I'm not advocating we, we go back to that, but what I mean is there was this diversity of the stuff that was being made. Now everybody's kind of competing for the same odd center ground in culture. Uh, but, you know, it, sadly, I mean, you know, pessimistically one could say the kinds of things that are happening politically may just destabilize everything to the extent that that, that kind of, uh, what feels like this kind of immovable status quo will just blow anyway and then people will just have to make art like they always have with whatever, with whatever means they've got. Any other questions? Yes, over there and here. So one and then two. Hi, I'm Hannah Kate. Um, I run this thing in Dublin for student filmmakers. Um, and we gather every month to screen films, like student-made films, and just kind of discuss and learn from each other. And I was wondering, do you remember the first student film you ever made? And what was the hardest challenge at the time? Oh, yes, I do. And it was a catastrophe. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the first thing we ever did was we got this equipment um, we raised some money for this equipment in, in here. And we formed a society and we had this video equipment which was like so ancient. I mean, it was the first time you, it was supposedly the first portable equipment that you could buy, which meant that there was like a huge big tape player, a car battery to power it, <laughs> a cable to somebody with a camera on their shoulder. We thought this was like, I mean, this was like a GoPro as far as we were concerned. Um, and we, did, we, got it, we got the job of documenting the Trinity Ball, which was like, this also felt like, oh my God, you know, we're sort of like, this is proper. And um, I think the only, I seem to remember that the only thing of value that came out of it was because we had these like portable lights, uh, we met a girl who'd lost her contact lenses and we were able to have <laughs> I think everything else went wrong. I mean, I think we did make it in the end, but I do also remember that our, my mate Michael, who is the cameraman, who's now professor of theoretical physics in Paris, right? So he was, <laughs> anyway, he, um, he, he was like, he, and you can see it on the footage, he's walking along, right? And, and there was sort of a, an, you know, a thing to stop the rain, walkway okay. down front square, right? And there's this kind of upright metal post which held up the walkway. And he's panning past it all the time, but it keeps coming in and out of the frame until eventually he just walked straight into it. And he was looking through the eyepiece. And then got really annoyed that we hadn't told him, even though he was actually watching it. So no, there was, we did loads of that stuff. And we did loads of kind of half-assed things. Uh, and it wasn't really until Three Joes, which was just after I left college, that I, that was the first thing I shot on film. It was the first proper drama. So I only ever made one drama short, really. Um, but I think what you're doing is great. I mean, it's the best possible way of, of, of learning and, and, and finding out what it is that you know, you're good at and, and you want to do. We have time for one last question. I think you, uh, somebody at the front? Yes, you, here, yeah. <laughs> Hi, my name is Lisa. Um, I'd like to ask how it is that you preserve your perspective in a place like Hollywood that's so loud and noisy, as you say. Yeah, how to preserve your perspective in, in Hollywood. I mean, the funny thing about, I, don't live there is the, big, is the first thing, I think. That's really, you know, that helps. And it's funny how the geographical thing really, it makes a difference still. We think about our lives as sort of so virtual that but actually where you are really does some seep in in another way. Like um, anytime I've been in LA, I ca you can't help but start to obsess a little bit about who's doing what. Because it's so, the whole industry, it's such a, the industry there is so much part of the city. It's such, it's such an enormous part of it. You can't get into an Uber or 
with everybody you meet's got some ambition or I had to stop saying that I was a director. What would happen is I very naively would say I was a director and they, they'd sort of be mildly interested and then they'd say, you know, and I'm, I can be quite chatty and they'd say, so what have you done? And I'd say, well, I'd, around the time of Room, I said, I just did this film Room and then they'd be like, brakes would be sort of hit, we like hit the back of the chair and then like screenplays would come out and you know, <laughs> acting CVs and there was one point I thought I'm never gonna get out of this cab, you know, I'm, I'm actually in danger. Um, so you just, I used to say, no, I'm an, I do in the film, I'm an accountant, and then they just leave you alone. Um, but uh, I think, uh, yeah, for me, it's, it is an odd place because you just, you, you do, it seeps in and you start to think in that way about what people are doing, what you should be doing, who you should be talking to. And I, and I know enough to know that, uh, it's like the thing about, I said earlier about big films, I know I'm not going to make them. I am odd in that way, which is I, I, I feel all that, I know I'm not going to go there, but I can't stop the noise of it, you know. Um, and then the other thing about, about Hollywood is, as somebody says, they will kill you with kindness. The first time I went there, I thought, oh, you know, and this is before I'd had any like real success, it was after what Richard did. And I thought, they all love me, you know, they think I'm incredible. And, you know, because everybody tells you, you're the, you know, you're amazing, they're dying to work with you. And it's death by a thousand, uh, you know, encouragements, which is why people end up, you know, on this terrible treadmill of not giving <laughs> up out there when maybe they, maybe they should. So I think, anyway, just have friends outside of it. Try not to live there. Um, <laughs> I, like, I, I do like it physically, um, L.A. I think it's beautiful. And I can imagine if you didn't work in the film industry, actually there's something amazing about ways that you can live in on the west coast in America I wouldn't, not particularly now but um, but I just think I think I was also it's part of the thing of being a bit older when I started to have success I think if I'd been 21 or 22 um, and, and, and found myself whisked out um, uh, it would have been a disaster actually I do remember I got a call a really famous agent from CAA about whom there are a million myths and stories and whatever, phoned me up after Adam and Paul. And for whatever reason, it had resonated with him and said he wanted to work with me and stuff. And you know, for about a week, I was kind of floating around and my mum, I told my mum, she thought, oh my God, this is, you know. And of course, nothing came of it. But luckily, I didn't sort of jump on a plane and go out there and say, this is it, this is my break. Because I would have just sunk, I think, like so many people do. Okay, I think um, that's been fabulous. Um, why make movies? Why make movies? Just keep making movies. <laughs> thank you. So please keep making movies, and thank you very much indeed. Thank you.